2 Corinthians 8, I want to begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 9. And verse 9 is where our focus will be this morning. It says, And you know, brothers, or and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given in Macedonia. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, that is, voluntarily, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did so, or I'm sorry, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then chapter 9 and verse 15. Summary statement to this extended discourse on generosity. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 basically deal with the topic of generosity. A generosity that is prompted and promoted by the generosity of the Savior himself. It is the coming of our Savior whose birth we are celebrating in this season. And this morning, I just put this question before you. What is the real reason for the attraction of Christmas? What is the real reason for the attraction Now, you could say when you're younger, certainly the attraction is evident, isn't it? Kids are all about, what am I getting? Okay? There is a marked, uh, if I use the word selfishness, young people, hopefully that's not too strong, but there's a tendency to think about what am I going to get? And then bug mom and dad, give them a list, uh, all those sorts of things. But as you mature, And hopefully, as you mature, you've noticed this. That you move from the joy of receiving to the joy of giving. There's a a change that comes with maturity. I have said to my daughters recently, they're like, well, what would you like? And those kinds of questions, seeking, kind of snooping around, trying to figure it out. Ask mom, ask dad. I email my daughters this week. What can I get for mom? Okay. As you mature okay the delight of the season is giving and as you read this passage of scripture you it is inescapable that the joy of christ was giving himself as the payment for sin chuck swindoll says it this way he says christmas provides us with an opportunity to get out of ourselves, to counteract the selfish streak that runs deep in all of us. It is a chance to deliberately get out and do something tangible for someone else with no thought of being paid back. 
Just the pure joy that is found in meeting a need, in expressing love, and receiving gratitude and appreciation. Doesn't that kind of sum it up? What it really, the thing that really attracts us is it gives me a chance to move away from myself, which is what God does, and we're in His image. So there's a sense in which that selfless giving is attractive but difficult. And Christmas gives an opportunity for us in a concrete way to do what many of us fail to do on a daily basis. To give gifts of appreciation, to express love and affection, and to experience the response to that. And one of the greatest joys of Christmas is what? It's watching the response of the giver. Okay, and sometimes you need to avert your eyes from the gift and from all that's going on and look at the person who put thought and sacrifice into making it possible. Okay, and this text calls us to look at the one who made Christmas possible. It calls us to look at Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is this. I want to challenge us to cultivate a generous spirit because a generous spirit is really what Christmas is all about. A generosity that not only affects our wallet, but our time and the talents that we have, the capacities and abilities that we have. And I want to ask you this question this morning. Do you have, do I have a generous spirit? Because I believe the thrust of verse 9, which is set in the middle of a context of two, two chapters, an extended discourse on giving, I believe that Paul's purpose is to draw our attention to a concise statement about Christmas, which is what verse 9 is. He wants us to look at that concise statement of Christmas and allow it to become what motivates us, the truth contained there, to motivate us to live a life of complete generosity. So that generosity would be normative and characteristic, not a seasonal expression during the holidays, but that it would become the normative expression of Christ-like living. Okay, so this morning... Would you ask yourself that question? Do you have a generous spirit? And to find out, we need to compare our generosity to the generosity of Jesus. And I want you to notice that as Paul begins in verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The, the grace is the generosity. It is the free affection. One writer defines it as this. It is the utterly undeserved, royally free, and effective goodwill of God that comes to us through Jesus. Utterly undeserved. Royally free. Effective goodwill of God that comes to us through the Son of God, Jesus. Okay, that's what grace is. And this text starts out by saying, for you know that generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what he does is, he goes into a few brief phrases that explain that royally free, effective generosity of God that is expressed through His Son, Jesus Christ. And what I'd like to do first is walk through the verse, uncover its basic meaning, and then draw three principles out of this passage that hopefully will affect us in this Christmas season. Okay? So let's first walk through this passage that is strategically tucked in the midst of a discussion of generosity, a gem, a concise explanation of what really this season is about. 
Let's read verse 9 once again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I want to make just three, from this text, three simple observations. Number one is this. He, Jesus, was rich. Okay? He was rich. He had an abundance. What is Paul referring to? Paul's referring to the, the eternal state of the existence of the Son of God. Okay? Because what the Bible teaches is this. Jesus Christ did not begin to exist in a manger in Bethlehem. Okay? That was his revealing in flesh, but it's not when he began. John chapter 1, or chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, talk about Jesus Christ's existence prior to time. It says this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. So I can go back to Genesis 1, 1 and find what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us, All things were made through Him, and apart from Him, nothing that is seen came into being. So who is Jesus? Jesus was richly and eternally God who was manifested in human flesh for our personal benefit. The Bible teaches that His existence did not begin in Bethlehem, but that His existence was an eternal existence with God and was God. He, this text says, made everything and therefore controls and owns everything. Folks, that is an amazing thought. He made everything, He controls everything, therefore He owns everything. If you were to go on the internet and look up the richest people in the world, you would find a family named the Waltons, okay? It's not the TV show Waltons, okay? It's the Waltons of what company? Walmart, okay? Uh, a, a, a net worth of well in excess of $50 billion, okay? That's a stat. I, I don't comprehend that kind of number, okay? That is a staggering wealth. Folks, do you understand how small that is? If you go to the list of the richest people in the world, you will find there are numerous people who have that much wealth. It is nothing compared to the riches of Christ, who owns everything and controls everything. So he was rich. He enjoyed the glory of heaven. John 17 and verse 5 says that Jesus talks about the glory that he shared with the Father before the world began. So that is to say this. His existence did not begin in a trough in Bethlehem. It was his manifestation, but it was not the beginning of his existence. In eternity, he experienced freedom from pain, freedom from struggle, and freedom from the possibility of death. He was utterly and infinitely and completely rich. And it's the first thought that Paul lays out. He was rich. The shocker occurs in the next phrase. He who was rich became poor. He who was rich became poor. Notice what it says. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. The idea of this text, very simply, is that Jesus voluntarily made himself 
poor. Because the acts of God are the acts of Christ. Because He is God. He volunteered to give up all of the resources and all of the blessings of the eternal existence and was reduced, as one writer puts it, to abject and extreme poverty. It's the idea of the word here. He stripped himself of all of the benefits of heaven and became into existence in human form in a manger. Tillyancy says this, On that day in Bethlehem, the maker took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. That is a mystery. God revealed in flesh, not as a robust, strong superman, but as what? As an infant. So that he could sympathize and empathize with our existence. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker took the form of a helpless, dependent newborn. Leighton Ford put it this way. He said, the poverty of Jesus is so extensive that he was born in a borrowed manger, preached from a borrowed boat, entered Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, ate the Last Supper in a borrowed upper room, and was buried in a borrowed tomb. Folks, it is impossible to look at the, at the life of Christ and not realize that when God came in flesh, He emptied Himself so very utterly and so very completely. His poverty can only be appreciated by comparing it to where He came from. Okay, I can only understand this condescending of Christ to our level when I reflect on where he came from. Here's the bottom line. No one has ever given up so much. Why? Because nobody else had ever had so much to give. His sacrifice from that angle, from that perspective, is remarkable. I would be stunned if the Walton family gave away all of their wealth. I would be stunned. But I would not nearly be as stunned as I am by the sacrifice of Jesus, who willingly gave up everything. So he was rich. The one who was rich became poor. And Philippians 2, if you just turn ahead a few pages in your Bible, to the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Philippians 2 and verse 6. And I'll just, I'll pick up in verse 5, because this text is very important in understanding what the poverty of Jesus encompasses, what it talks about, what it refers to in its entirety. So Philippians 2 and verse 6, it says, who being in very nature God. Okay, that is an exact representation based on Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Okay, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay, this existence of being very God, did not restrict him from coming to make a generous sacrifice for our benefit. He became poor. How poor did he become? This text begins to unpack that. He made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant, though he was the creator and controller of all things. He was made in human likeness. Okay, he took on human form. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And then Paul says this, even death on a cross. Why does Paul put it that way? Because the death of Jesus Christ shows us the depths of the poverty that he assumed and that he chose for our benefit. 
He was rich. He set all of heaven aside and allowed himself to feel pain, hunger, and tiredness. He faced all the temptation and trials that come from living in a sinful world. And then he died willingly to pay the price for our sin. Folks, this is what I mean. His becoming poor was a voluntary act on his part to give everything. So in John chapter 10, the passage about the good shepherd, he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Later he says to his disciples this, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. So why did Jesus come? Mark chapter 10 says this, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. So the cross of Christ was the purpose of his coming. The cross of Jesus Christ was the goal. The New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation, that is, of this infleshing of God, which can be understood apart from its relationship to the cross of Christ. In other words, I can't understand the true meaning of Christmas and the generosity that it speaks to and encourages in all of us if I don't look at the cross. Meaning this, the coming of Jesus makes no sense apart from the cross because it was the purpose for which he came. I can only appreciate the season of Christmas and the purpose of Christmas and the generosity of Christmas when I look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because truly, we can say that the value of a gift is measured by its cost. The cost of our salvation was the death of Jesus Christ on a hill called Golgotha. The aim of his infleshing in a manger and living a perfect life, the aim of it was to move towards Calvary. He was born so that he could die. Not Bethlehem, but Calvary was the focus of his coming. Therefore, you and I are the focus of the voluntary self-impoverishment of Jesus. I was talking to a man, to a man in my office the other day. He'd stopped by um, for a business purpose. I'll just keep it general so I don't identify the person. And I just Randomly, I just said to him, get talking about family and all this stuff that we all talk about. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I felt compelled to say to him, how are you doing? I mean, you personally. And I was stunned by his response. He said, I'm not doing well. This is a guy I might see once a year. About. How are you doing? I'm not doing well. We, we ended up having a discussion about Christmas studying this passage of Scripture, a discussion about why Jesus Christ had come. When I told him that Jesus Christ, from the Word of God, was born to die, it's a man who attended church when he was younger. He said to him, I didn't know that. He said, I find that to be an amazing statement. That the purpose of Bethlehem was Calvary. That the aim of the coming of God in flesh was the cross. That kind of love, it, it just set him back. He was able to give him a track and send him on his way saying, look, you need to think about responding to the grace of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ 
who though he was rich, enjoying all the benefits of heaven, set it aside so that by his poverty, his impoverishment on the cross, a benefit could come back to us. And here's the way this text is laid out. If I turn my back and I say it this way, okay? The text says, he was rich, he became poor, by his poverty, we become rich. In literature, they call it an A-B-B-A. Okay, so the thought is, he was rich, he became poor, by his poverty, we become rich. That is the, the flow of this sort of text. Okay, there was an aim in his impoverishment. And it is that by his poverty, we might become rich. The question that we then need to ask is, why did he do this? Why did he self-impoverish? Why did the one who was rich become poor? And we answer that by the last part of the verse. It says, Jesus, though he was rich, for your sakes, and you can translate this better, made himself poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Okay? I want you to notice this. By his poverty, we become rich. And the, the verse says very clearly, so that. So his becoming poor was for our sake. That is to say that it was for the benefit of a very specific group of people. Okay? For your sakes, he became poor so that by his impoverishment, you might become rich. This text shares the principle of exchange. And if you just look back a page or two to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, you'll gain greater clarity on this. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that is for the benefit of us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, do you see the comparison there? The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we sinners might become the righteousness of God in Him. What this text is saying is very similar to what 2 Corinthians 8 9 is saying. There is a principle here of exchange. On the cross, an exchange takes place. The death that I deserve to die is borne by the Son of God. He, as a substitute, takes my place on the cross of Calvary. The result is that his righteousness then comes to us as a gift that we receive by grace through faith. Jesus on the cross takes our poverty, all of our sin, all of our rejection of God, all of our selfishness, our pride, our hatred, our envy, our lust, our anger, our lies. And what does he do? He takes our sin, and bearing our sin, He receives the punishment that we should receive. That's the exchange. That's why we, in theological terms, call the death of Jesus Christ the vicarious death. That is the substitutionary death of Christ. He was rich, He became poor. Through His poverty, we become rich. Because on the cross, He bore the consequence of our sin. He who knew no sin faced the full force of God's wrath and anger against our sin. That is to say, he died for me. Now here's the question that might pop into your mind. Why? Why did Jesus Christ come and die? Now obviously it says so that he might make us rich, but when we hear riches, what do we tend to think in terms of? We tend to think in terms of dollars, of monetary value. 
Okay? Jesus did not come. Please understand this. He did not come to make us rich because our greatest need is not financial. If our greatest need was financial, he could have set us an advisor to help us to become more wealthy, a, a business coach to help us maximize our opportunity and potential. He could have done that, but I would die a rich man, poor in righteousness, deserving of separation from God. If our greatest need was, was a better understanding of the world, was intellect, he could have sent a professor. But he didn't do that. Our greatest need was the result of our sin. And so what does God do? He sends for us a Savior, a Redeemer, a perfect God-man who sets aside the benefits of heaven. God comes in flesh, and in that flesh bears our hell on the cross. And the beginning of something that is worked out through eternity in the life of every believer begins here. Our hell is taken away. The hope of heaven is ours. Our sin is forgiven. We are adopted into God's family. We receive the indwelling spirit who is the down payment who whispers to us the best is yet to come. Okay, that's, that's the exchange. What it means to be rich is to be rich in hope. That my sin does not condemn me to what I deserve because Jesus came and took what I deserve on the cross. He became poor so that you could experience the hope of heaven, so that you could enjoy the benefits of the indwelling spirit in your life, so that you could know that when I, die, when I breathe my last breath, and leave behind all that I have accomplished, and I leave behind all that I have acquired, that the future is bright. Because you know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The Son of God, who was incredibly and inestimably rich. He set it aside. He became poor, so that through his self-impoverishment, Becoming a man, yet perfect. Going to the cross and dying to pay the price for my sin. He takes away my debt. And you know what he does? He credits me with his righteousness. Folks, that's the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin. What do I get in exchange for it when I come to him as a repentant sinner? I experience the full benefit of the flood of his righteousness. Now, can we just say this? That's not fair. That's not fair that Christ should bear my sin, but it is, in fact, what he does for us. Not because it's fair, but because it is required, it is necessary. On the third day, what happens? He's raised from the dead. So this, this idea of, he, though he was rich, he became poor, speaks to the whole process of the enfleshing of God, coming, living, dying, paying the price for our sin, raised again on the third day to lead us into His presence forever. That is what it is to be rich. To have a Savior who has conquered the consequences of my sin by bearing it on Himself and taking it away. Now the question that has to come to your mind is this. That He became poor, the one who was rich, so that by His poverty, we might become rich. Who knows this joy? Who has the riches that are being spoken about in this text. Who knows riches that promotes an enormous sense of generosity, a Christmas spirit throughout the year, not seasonally? Who knows that? I think the answer is found in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. It says the wages of sin is death. 
That's what I deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know who is rich? The person who is rich is the person who has received the gift of God. Okay, the God sent gift, the forgiveness of their sin and the righteousness of Jesus. The person who has received that gift is inestimably and eternally blessed. Do you know this gift? Do you enjoy these riches? The coming of Christ, therefore, if it is about giving us a gift that makes us rich for now and for eternity, then the coming of Christ ultimately is all about grace. Christmas is all about a gift. God's undeserved kindness that comes to every believer in, in and by sending His Son for us. Now it leads me to three just applications, if you will, that emerge out of this passage of Scripture. Okay, Because you have to look at this and say, if Christ left so much and was willing to impoverish himself so far, how should that affect me? Because Paul's quoting this or giving this observation about the Christmas work of Jesus in the context that talks about giving and generosity. How should this condensed version of the gospel affect us? How should it change us? The first answer I would give you this morning is this. It should affect us in that it causes us to trust in Jesus Christ. At the beginning of verse 8, here's the way Paul says it. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to people who have personally participated in the riches of God through the righteousness of Christ given as a gift. He already knows that personally. And so Paul writes to them and is appealing to them based on their personal knowledge of the love of God that has been revealed to them through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, you know, and the idea is this, you are personally acquainted with this grace. This morning, friends, if you give to get the blessing of God, if you give to pave your own way to heaven. Can I encourage you to do something? Stop giving. If you give because you think by your giving, you're going to cause God to give you something that you don't deserve, I would encourage you to stop. Okay? Because all Christian giving, all giving that pleases God, is giving that as a response to the broader scope of God's grace in Jesus. So the only giving that God approves of and appreciates is giving that flows out of a response to the riches of God in Christ. Okay, so if you give to get God's favor, stop. Admit to God your poverty through Jesus by faith. Become rich in righteousness. Be forgiven for your sin. Know the gift of eternal life and your life will forever be changed. Not only now, but for eternity. The first response that we should give to this abundant grace is that you and I would come to know it personally. Do you know this? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you admitted to Him that you are poor because of your sinfulness? That what you deserve is separation from Him forever. Not heaven, but separation from Him forever in hell. 
And as you acknowledge that, come to Him, flee to Him. Because on the cross, what did He do? He paid the full price for your sin. And He made the riches of heaven available to you, not as something you purchase by good works, but as something that you receive, just like on Christmas morning. Okay? I expect that no checkbooks will be taken out on Christmas morning to pay people back for the gifts that they have given. That's what I suspect. I suspect, and I've never had this happen, not one of my daughters has ever, on Christmas morning, opened her present and said, Dad, I love it so much. And how much was that? Can I pay you back? Okay, why? Because you would say, that's absurd. Folks, the way we experience the riches of Christ is by knowing it. And knowing it means to become personally acquainted with it. We become personally acquainted with Christ by trusting in Him. But I realize that, yes, He was rich. He was born in a manger. He became poor on the cross ultimately and bore the consequence of my sin and offers me forgiveness. To be rich is to be forgiven and to have the glorious hope of heaven. Trust that He, on the cross, bore the price for your sin. Because we were morally impoverished. And what He does through His life, death, burial, and resurrection is He credits to our account, to our debt, He credits a full sum of righteousness. And as a result, we enjoy a personal and glorious forgiveness and relationship with Him. So first response is this. If you have never trusted Christ, I would encourage you to become part of the first phrase of this verse, people that know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, would you just ask yourself that question? Do I know that? Am I convinced of the grace of God in Jesus in my life? And the second encouragement, which I think is the fundamental thrust of this text, it is this. Be generous. Be generous. Be generous in response to the riches of God in Christ. You see, God doesn't come to us and demand generosity. He doesn't obligate us to generosity. He encourages it by blessing us with the riches of Jesus. And see, that's the whole thrust of this text. If God has been so rich towards you, how can you be stingy in your life in terms of your time, talents, and treasure? You see, generosity is the, is the essence of Christmas. It is the essence of Christ's self-humbling and impoverishment. And when we commit ourselves to live a generous life, we should do it. Not because God said, I have to. No, you know what we should do? We should be generous as a response to all that God has done for us. Not as payment, but as a response out of an understanding of what He has so gloriously and richly and freely done to, for us. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 12. I want you to notice, just real, or 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 12. Notice how Paul captures this generosity and the essence of it. Okay, because this leads us to our last thought. Paul says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is overflowing in many expressions of thanksgiving to God. In other words, the purpose for Christian generosity, the purpose for the coming of Christ, is not simply to give us the hope of heaven. It's not simply for us to relieve the needs of the needy, although that is fundamental to it. The fundamental purpose of generosity, Paul says, is this that overflowing 
in many expressions of thanksgiving to God. That is the, the aim, if you will. That is the goal. Verse 13. Because of the service that you have, by which, I'm sorry, the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. How were the Corinthians confessing the gospel of Christ? You know how they were confessing it? By imitating the grace that they had received in Jesus. And when they did that, what happened? Thanksgiving and praise overflowed towards God. So, as we look at this text and say, how should I respond? One is this, trust in what Christ has done for you. Number two, be generous with everything that God has given to you. As a response, why? Christ laid down his life for us, 1 John 3 says. We ought also to lay our lives down for the brothers. Generosity, giving, is not the means of our getting God's favor. But it is the Christian response to God's favor. Okay, in other words, we should not give because we think God's going to bless us. We should give because we have been so richly blessed. And when we do that, what happens? Gratitude is expressed towards God. I want you to look at verse 15 of chapter 9 then. Okay, and this really is the, this is the climax of this discussion on generosity that at the center of it has the heart of Christmas. The impoverishment of Christ that leads to the riches of sinners. Paul says this. He gets done this whole discourse and he says, you know what? Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. We in this season and throughout the year should be people who trust in the riches of God in Christ. We should be people who are generous. Why? Because as we share our generosity and as we express a generosity that is different than the generosity of the world around us, it catches the attention of a watching world and they say, where is that coming from? What is the compulsion? What is the motivation behind that kind of generosity that is not just found in writing checks, but in self-giving, in the use of talents and gifts for the benefit of others? Where is that coming from? The Christian response is, you know what? I have been so blessed by God in Christ that I cannot help but be a person who is generous. The last thought that emerges is this. Be thankful to God. Be thankful to God. It is the aim. It is the ultimate outcome. John Piper says it this way. The ultimate outcome of deep generosity is that many thanks rise to God for the surpassing grace that He has put into the hearts of His people. If we have understood Christmas correctly, if we get what this is all about, that He who was rich became poor, that through His poverty we become rich, if we understand that, we should be the most thankful people on the planet. And we should be the most generous people on the planet. And we should be the most trusting people on the planet. Because the end game of all of this, of the cross of Christ, is that God, through the lives of redeemed sinners, would be glorified. And it's why at the end Paul says this, Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, through his poverty, we are so abundantly and incredibly rich. So in this season, if you have never trusted him, can I encourage you this morning? If you don't know Christ, flee to the cross.
flee to the cross and trust Him. Christian friend, if you have been so blessed by the grace of God, be a generous person. But don't be generous to get the favor of God. Be generous because you are expressing gratitude to God. And in your abundant generosity, what's happening? You are saying, thanks be to God for the gift of His Son Jesus that defies explanation, that cannot be adequately captured in human words. Thanks be to God. Let the spirit of Christmas, generosity, not be a seasonal expression. Let it be the normative life for every believer in the church of Christ so that a watching world will see Jesus in you, will see his sacrifice in you, and will glorify God on the day that he again comes to visit us. Let's pray this morning, Father.